0: Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm happy to introduce my first guest of 2022, Charles Hudson, founder and managing partner at Precursor Ventures. What's going on, Charles? Oh,
1: I'm really happy to be here.
0: I'm excited. I've been
1: looking forward to this since I saw you and you mentioned it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this one too. So for those who are not as familiar with you and your background, Charles, can you just walk through sort of your professional background and the path you took to get to where you are today?
1: Yeah. So I'm originally from Michigan, but I've been living in the San Francisco Bay area now for 26 years. I moved out here for college and I graduated right into the tail end of the internet 1.0 boom. (laughs) And I ended up working for the Central Intelligence Agency's venture capital fund, Incutel,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right out of undergraduate. And the funny thing is the guy who ran Incutel at the time, Gilman Louie, was a huge gamer. Oh wow. And so he's like probably the only VC I know who had like Maya, who had Maya on his work laptop and would like <laughs> occasionally do like modeling. Mm-hmm. And who was like, you know, as comfortable talking about uh, games as he was national security. And uh, spent a few years at Incutel, then went back to the business school at Stanford, Mm -hmm. graduated, tried my hand in a number of operating jobs, business development, product management, and ended up really kind of getting into free-to-play games Mm -hmm. through Mm -hmm. a very random set of occurrences where I ended up having dinner with Min Kim, who was then at Nexon, and a few of the people, and he told me about this game, Cart Rider, Mm -hmm. I'll never forget He told me about how much money cart rider was making and i said well is it a subscription service people buy the game and he sort of explained virtual goods to me Mm -hmm. in the early aughts and like my mind was blown (laughs) i like kind of equate it to like back then it was like the laser eyes equivalent i was like oh man now that i've seen the light (laughs) how do i go back and uh started working in free-to-play games at a number of platforms the web facebook Mm -hmm. mobile And then came back to venture investing kind of circa 2010. Mm -hmm. And for the last uh, bit of time, I've been a venture capitalist, both at Uncork, where I was a partner for about five years, and then my own firm precursor for the last seven. Awesome. So a lot to dive into there.
0: We're going to talk a lot more about, you know, your time in gaming a little bit later. But beforehand, you know, just on precursor. So, you know, you had several years of VC experience before starting it. Why did you actually decide to start your own fund? And then what was the process like of starting a fund as a solo GP? You know, a lot of people talk about how difficult it is to fundraise at all. You know, I'm sure it's tremendously more difficult uh, as a solo GP.
1: Yeah, it's important just to give a little bit of historical context. Mm -hmm. So when I joined Uncork, Jeff had been running the fund by himself, Mm -hmm. and he'd raised $15 million dollars. For his first institutional fund that was soft tech two. While it was there, we raised another fund, which was soft tech three, which was a $55 million fund. We mm-hmm. raised a fund after that that was $85 million. When you 5x your fund size, your strategy tends to change. Right. And we went from a fund that I would argue soft tech two was basically a pre-seed fund, but there was no terminology for that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We were writing relatively small checks to pre-launch companies into rounds of you know a million dollars or less. Mm-hmm. That was the seed market back <laughs> in, in 07 to 010. Very different from today. Very yeah. different. And I really liked that style of investing. And as mm-hmm. we grew our fund size and our fund's brand got stronger and we could lead bigger rounds, sort of the default investing at the fund really became, let's write the million to million and a half dollar check mm-hmm. to lead the two to $3 million seed round. And let's take a board seat more often than not. And that wasn't really the style of investing that really just spoke to me the most. I was pretty convinced that Jeff, Andy, and Steph would be very good investing that way. And it turns out they are. <laughs> and I just felt like my heart was in the old work we used to do, that I didn't have the vocabulary of pre-seed to describe it back then. Right. But that's really what I wanted to do. And you know, the reason I ended up starting my own fund was Founders would come to me and say, I'm raising 500 or 750. And I would say, I really have bad news for you. I don't write that check anymore. Yeah. Like that's not the business I'm in. I'm really sorry. And they would say, okay, I get it. But who does write that check? And I would just tell people, I literally don't know who <laughs> writes that check anymore. It's not me. It's not anyone I know. All the other firms that I'm close to, they're going through the same size up journey that we are. Right. And so I kept telling entrepreneurs, I don't know where you should go to get that check. <laughs> I wish I, I really wish I had a great answer for you. I simply do not. Mm -hmm. And it felt really dissatisfying. And so I left to start my own firm not realizing how difficult it was going to be to get it off the ground. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. You mentioned the single GP thing. I thought the single GP issue would be the toughest thing for me to get people comfortable with. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. And I think it's because people like Michael Deering and Chris Saka Mm -hmm. and Steve Anderson, And, you know, others had shown LPs who were open to it that you can do really well with solo GP Mm model. The thing for me that was the issue was our portfolio construction and that we do 75 to a hundred companies per fund. A lot of LPs were like that plus single GP seems totally unworkable. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I think the hardest thing about being a single GP is you really don't have like a emotional counterweight when you're raising your fund. It's kind of like being a solo founder in a startup, like, the best days are less exciting because you don't have anybody to celebrate with. And the bad days are way worse because you don't have anybody to pick you up. So it takes a certain kind of person to do a fund on their own. And I tell people all the time, if you are that person, just do it. And if you aren't, if you're like, hey, I want to do I want to have a partner, I don't want to go on this journey by myself, then don't go <laughs> by yourself. Yeah. It's really difficult <laughs> if, you, if it's not what you want to do. Mm-hmm. What I was tell my LPs is like, at least there was no team risk, right? Like you had one, <laughs> you had one guy, just me. So yeah, I don't know, for me, I felt, I felt really comfortable doing it on my own. It was really hard though, really mm-hmm. hard.
0: So, you know, you mentioned the stage a little bit, but what are some sectors, if any, that you're more interested in, or is it, you know, sort of truly a generalist approach? And then you mentioned 75 to 100 investments per fund. Why that approach? What are some of the challenges and what are some of the benefits of taking that
1: approach? Particularly with first-time founders, many of them surpass my wildest expectations in terms of their capacity and ability. Mm -hmm. And having invested in basically almost 300 companies at this point, the one thing I've learned is that there really isn't much good preparation for being a founder. It's a really different job. It's different than being a GM. It's different than being a VP. It's its own thing. As a result, I'm sort of of the mind that the best way to find out if somebody can rise to the occasion and be a good founder is to give them the chance to be a founder. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any real sector theses. There's things I've learned by investing. Like we have a bunch of companies in the employee benefits sector, whether it's carrot level, modern health, origin, we've quite a few. That's not a sector I knew anything about before Mm -hmm. I started investing. And now that I've made six or seven investments, I know something about that approach. And so the only thing I really don't do is deep tech, hard tech. And that's really because I don't have the background to evaluate the scientific or technical claims of those products. And also, I don't know why any of those companies would look at me and my background and say, that's the guy we want to lead our round. So I think the, the pro, though, of doing, let's call it 30 to 40 companies a year, is you can take risk on people. You can pick people that you're excited about and give them a shot at 250 with the pacing and volume of investments we make every year, it just gives me a chance to, to give more people an opportunity to show what they're capable of doing. And truthfully, like our operating model is lead that first round of a million dollars or less, pre-product market fit, provide capital to the entrepreneur, a supportive founder community, some advice and time for me, all of these things I think are generally useful and helpful to founders. And once you have product market fit and some traction, you're going to raise a new round. And with that new round, you're going to get two things. One is the capital you need to hire more people Mm -hmm. to build out your team, which means you're probably going to ask me for less help. Mm -hmm. And two, you're going to get another engaged investor around the table who will likely spend time with you. And it's probably set up to deliver things that I'm not. So the whole theory is, well, if you do, let's call it 40 a year, 15 or 20 of those within that first year should find product market fit, raise new rounds and yeah. kind of graduate to uh, to needing us less.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Some small chunk of them will just outright fail. And then you'll have some middle bucket call it 15 companies that just need more time and attention to break through. And every year we just sort of run a new, basically a new cohort of like 30 or 40 companies and, Like we have a couple companies that in six months find product market fit, raising you around. I'm like, I barely got to know you before you (laughs) sort of moved on to the next phase of it. And I have a couple other companies. It's been three and a half or four years and we're still just sort of grinding away on the problem. And it's like starting to work, but it's been a much longer engagement than I had had anticipated.
0: Okay. And then in a past conversation that we've had, you mentioned that for a period of time, you weren't doing as much investing in the gaming industry. Mm -hmm. Why is that?
1: Wow. Um, So I I worked in, I think, two of the more brutally competitive subsectors of games.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. One was Facebook games. Mm -hmm. And anyone who worked in that era knows what I'm talking about. It was like really crazy. There were like no rules. It was like (laughs) digital warfare. I worked in mobile games, which had actually a pretty similar dynamic to Facebook in terms of like, competitive landscape the way that things operated what it took to succeed and i just sort of said you know these two experiences have taken the fun out of games for me mm-hmm. it has gotten very mechanical around acquisition and i was like i got into games cuz i like building fun experiences for people this feels like i'm just solving this cac math problem all day yeah. and trying to figure out how to get more tap joy credits. I was like, the activities that we're doing as a company are not fun for me. And I was like, I feel like too much of this business has gotten away from like delighting, delighting the people who play these games. It's gotten more into how do I extract the most money from the one to 5% of my players will pay. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, I don't want to spend my time on this problem anymore. I've just like kind of burned out on it. And I got kind of like cynical just about what motivated people to start games companies and mm-hmm. I didn't see any new platforms. So ironically, Chris, as a result, I kind of totally turned my back right as esports was emerging. <laughs> yeah. Which will always go down. It's one of my great regrets as an investor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that like I I think a lot of my friends from games motivated esports. And if I think about it, a lot of the rationality was like there's real energy and passion mm-hmm. in this sec- in this sector of games. And I was just so kind of like cynical and negative after those two category experiences. I just couldn't bring myself to believe that there was like something authentic and fun and mm-hmm. joyful to do in games. And honestly, the thing that changed it for me was, you know, I started dabbling in, in some things in voice games mm-hmm. back pre pandemic when, when we were like running those experiments. Mm-hmm. But I think honestly, Roblox is the platform that sort of like brought me back to games. Yeah. And so we've, we've, we've been active in investing on in that platform just because the people I know who are big on Roblox, they love it. Mm-hmm. It's like joyful. It's fun for them. And the developers have a different ethos. And so I've like come back to games. I wish I'd maybe come to <laughs> games a little faster. It's a good, just a general investing reminder that like it's okay to like have a memory and scar tissue, but don't mm-hmm. let it be so thick that like it blinds you to what happens when the world changes. mhm
0: and so, just on that category of, vo- of voice games, what's an investment that you've made in the space or just
1: a company that you think is interesting within the space? We had invested in a company called DriveTime that was making voice based games mm-hmm. for your commute back when we commuted before COVID. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, they pivoted into something very, very different. And so, I won't, you know, I don't know how much they're sharing about sure. what they're doing. So, I, I, won't, I won't say more than that. But I really liked the product because it was a really fun trivia thing to play on your way home or on your way to work. I think there was something there. I think there were some, also some story-based games companies I met that were building specifically for digital assistants at home that I thought were building really interesting products. My big takeaway is that most of these voice platforms haven't spawned as many interesting standalone businesses as I had hoped or expected. Mm-hmm. And my takeaway is that like, they've been great for the search businesses of Amazon and Google. Mm -hmm. Probably great for Spotify for generating more streams and maybe YouTube. But I think if you were a developer who's like, I'm betting my company on building apps and services for this platform. I don't think it's been great. Okay. And then are you a gamer today?
0: No worries if you're not. But if you are, what are some of the games that you're playing?
1: I have a toddler (laughs) who will be five soon. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And- I basically gave up games once my son was born mm-hmm. because I felt like I didn't have enough time. Like For me, games are only fun if I, uh, this is my gamer personality. <laughs> games are fun for me if I feel like I'm getting better. I don't even care yeah. if I'm winning. If I feel like I'm getting better and learning, they're fun. And if, and if that's not true, I don't play them. And I realized a lot of the games I liked, I just like, I used to play a lot of co-op Gears of War. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of co-op Gears of War. I, I, I used to play a lot of Xbox Live.
2: Mm-hmm. And I just realized like this is
1: incompatible with being like the kind of father and husband I want to be. So, better to play like no games and just say, I don't play games. I don't play FIFA anymore. I don't play Gears. I don't play all these games that I like. Mm -hmm. I retired than to like play a little bit and be frustrated that like I'm not good or I'm not enjoying it. So, it's been weird. This is the first, this is the longest stretch of my entire life, kid, Mm -hmm. adult, whatever, that I really haven't regularly played some kind of video game.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so before your VC days, you know, you alluded to this earlier, but you started a company called Bionic Panda Games. What was this company? What
1: were you working on? So my co-founder, of Bionic Panda Games, he and I had worked together at this Facebook games company
2: mm-hmm.
1: that ended up getting acquired by Zynga. It's called Sir- It was called Serious Business. I loved working with my co-founder Mike. Mm-hmm. He's a great guy. And we both kind of decided for a bunch of reasons that joining Zynga wasn't what we were going to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we had a bunch of ideas that we worked on. Some of them were, frankly, quite terrible. <laughs> um, but we we both were into Android. Mm-hmm. Now, just to give you some sense, we're talking 2008. Mm-hmm. So this is a long time. This is before the Pixel. I mean, I tell everyone, <laughs> the only quasi-decent Android telephone at the time was the, the Nexus One. Mm-hmm. And that's a long time ago. <laughs> and we had this notion that like, you know, at the time, Pocket Gems and Tiny Co. and there were a handful of people that mm-hmm. were big in the iOS free-to-play sort of 1.0 generation mm-hmm. games. Ironically, a lot of those people came from the Facebook world and brought a lot of those skills and techniques with them. And um, we just watched what was happening on iOS. And in 08, it kind of felt like, Trying to become an iOS developer when you had these other people already on platform, it just seemed hard to do. Mm -hmm. Like it felt like there were companies building big portfolios. And we said, no one's working on Android because there's no money in it Mm -hmm. right now. But what if we could build an Android only, Android first games company? Because what are the chances that this, monetization gap persists forever. You're right. Google's a big company with a big bet on Android. And remind you, this is before they had integrated payments in, in the Play Store. Mm-hmm. So if you were on an Android, you kind of had to hack your own <laughs> payments experience. And so my co-founder and I decided to do to go all in on Android and we built this game called AquaPets that was this kind of like a fishing meets slot machine mechanic where mm-hmm. you bought bait and the kind of bait you bought determined what kind of fish you could catch. And like the payoff in the game was because Android let you build these live wallpapers or these like dynamic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. The idea was like your fish tank became your background. So basically you played the game to decorate your phone Mm -hmm. and create a fish tank that would be pleasing aesthetically or beautiful or funny. And it was a really good game. I mean, it did tens of thousands of dollars a month on Android when that was actually Mm -hmm. like kind of hard to do. Yeah. So we built the game and it did pretty well. And we we convinced ourselves that rather than like tripling down on that game and seeing what we could squeeze out of it, that Mm -hmm. we would start to scale up the studio and hire more people and start to build more games. And so we did that for a couple of years. And then ultimately what we realized was like, it was going to take five to seven years. Mm -hmm for android to be like a truly monetizable ecosystem both on the device side and on the like app store side i'd still contend we were wrong we were overly hmm. optimistic thinking that in 2009 it was going to be five to seven years yeah even it, longer than that mm-hmm. to happen if it, if it's even happened and we kind of had two choices hmm. one was to continue to stick with android keep the team small and like play the long game with Android. Mm-hmm. And that was option one option two was find a way to like play on iOS and like whether that's make games that are cross-platform or build, build games that build games for iOS, even though we had a team that was all suited to Android. hmm and we we chose to try to do cross platform at a time when the tooling was just was just not there yeah and so we ended up doing a very small acquisition of the company and you know i was i was you know was bummed it mm-hmm. didn't it didn't work out the way i thought it would so if
0: you were to build bionic panda today how would you approach it and do you think it would be
1: more successful um i don't know if it would be more successful i think my big takeaway from that experience. And it's something I share with my portfolio companies is -hmm. one of my investors, when we decided to do this cross-platform thing, he's like, look, I invested in your company because I think you guys are Android experts. Mm -hmm. And are you sure you want to flush all of this hard-earned expertise you have down the toilet and go try to compete with everyone else, either cross-platform or on iOS? Mm -hmm. He's like, there's another path here, which is that you just stay small and patient and you continue to just like accumulate more Android expertise. And at some point as Android gets better, you'll either crack the code or somebody will pay a lot of money to acquire your company because you've really figured out Android at scale. And ironically he's right. Cause when we were selling the company, we got very close to selling it twice to two big public internet companies, neither of which were games companies. Hmm. They were both big public internet companies that were desperate for Android talent a big part of me wishes we had just like stuck with our original thesis, even though it was going to take longer. Yeah. We would have just kept the team smaller. The company would have been basically break even. We would have gotten more mileage out of our first game, which continued to perform. Nothing else we ever shipped after that ever worked (laughs) nearly as well as our first game, a story I know you've heard before from from game studio. So, you know, we we, we made a lot of mistakes. I take, as a CEO, I take responsibility for (laughs) all of them. There's just a lot of things I learned that I try to impart in our portfolio of companies more as stories and like things to watch out for than as like prescriptions.
0: Okay. And then you also
1: worked at this company
0: called Gaia Interactive. What mm-hmm. was this? What was this company? What was going on there?
1: It was this um, I think all this metaverse conversation like takes me back a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Gaia so was
0: we'll, um... we'll, we'll get to that part of the conversation. I have a lot of follow-ups there.
1: Yeah. It was kind of an online virtual world mm-hmm. for teens. If you think and this was in the mid aughts, mm-hmm. that this, I think two thousand seven, two thousand eight, the idea was like it, it was basically an avatar, chat, discovery, virtual hangout experience. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of the like coolest, most interesting, quirky group of people I've ever worked with. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed working at Gaia. It was my first. Full-time real startup job. I'd done startup stuff before, but like as an intern or part-time, it was my first full-time startup job. In a lot of ways, Gaia is where I learned that I wanted to be in startups. I've been at Google prior to that and I'd enjoyed my time at Google, but I was not adjusting well as Google got larger and larger. I just I just didn't like it as much.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I went to Gaia, and there were two of us on the sales and BD team, me and my boss. And he hired out some more sales And I think like a lot of my good startup friends to this day are people I worked with at Gaia. Mm-hmm. That was like my first real startup family. And I learned a ton about games from the team that worked there. I learned a lot about entertainment and audience engagement and game mechanics. There were just a lot of really interesting people there. And I, I love my time at, at, at Gaia. It was like really for me, Mm -hmm. But the challenge we had, in my opinion, was we had built this really amazing virtual world Mm -hmm. experience for teens. That was everything for you if you were a certain type of teen in Mm -hmm. a certain part of your life. And once you were 10 degrees right or left of that mark, it was not something that appealed to you. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting experience because we tried really hard to grow the audience for that product. Mm-hmm. And it was stubbornly stuck on a pretty small, but consistent, loyal, high. end And we didn't yeah. talk about daily active users. Yeah. And we, like, we just had registered users and logged in. Like, we didn't have the vocabulary we have mm-hmm. today. But it was an audience that was intensely loyal. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, it was not, even though we called it a casual hangout, it wasn't casual. The people who used it, used <laughs> it a lot. And I think part of the reason we couldn't grow it is like to get the most out of it you had to really commit yeah to making it like a a big part of your entertainment diet, mm-hmm. and not everybody was willing to do that. so I just learned so much from the team there, and um I don't know. I really loved it. And so for for those folks listening to this who
0: haven't heard of Guy Online, you should definitely like check it out. See if you can find videos of it or anything like that, um, and then you'll definitely understand what Charles is saying. Um, (laughs) You know, Charles, you mentioned this whole metaverse thing, right? And so, you know, there's obviously, I I think it's like the, the biggest buzzword of the year. And there's sort of, you know, there's so many different schools of thought and so many different hypotheses on it. And a lot of folks you know, I guess some folks who have been following this stuff for a while, you know, for like decades, for example, make the argument that this isn't really anything different from, you know, the the shared, the shared like social hangout spaces that we've been seeing, you know, for, for decades, right? There are obviously some, some changes to it, but overall, you know, this like quote unquote metaverse thing has been here in some uh, sort of capacity, you know, for a while. And so I'm curious, you know, sort of, in your opinion, is this like this big revolution or is this sort of a repetition of what we've seen previously, you know, but just
1: with renewed sort of hype? Um I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can tell you what feels different mm-hmm. to me. I think there's the obvious things, which I think the tech the technology is better.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, you know, we didn't have VR headsets before we hadn't people hadn't really experimented with ar Mm -hmm. before so i think the underlying tech is better i think the thing that makes me cautiously optimistic is and this might sound weird Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people have figured out how to make friends online Mm
0: -hmm. i think that and i think when a lot of
1: and i think the reason i'm like cautiously optimistic that this time might turn out different is i think before most people weren't fluent at how do you make friends online yeah how do you have a relationship with someone that you only know in a digital context, and mm-hmm. I think early internet people were at the vanguard of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And but there weren't enough of them. Let I me mean, go all the way back to like the well and like these yeah. early communities. A lot of those were like people making friends in a digital format, and mm-hmm. they used to be considered like weird behavior. Yeah, yeah. If you were like a quote unquote normal person, you made your friends in real life. Yeah, you didn't make friends on the on the internet. Similar to dating. Yeah, right. Like you 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 didn't meet your partner online.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that like the fact that people have learned how to make friends online is a profound change. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the things that like are challenging, I think are still challenging. Like this is, these are immersive experiences. And I think part of the thing that like makes thumbing through something on your phone is that it's not immersive. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I can be on the bus and safely thumb through things on my phone. I can be in a meeting and someone could, that so meeting with could go to the bathroom and I have five minutes. I can like, it's mm-hmm. not immersive. I can do it while doing this metaverse thing still feels very immersive. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that many people have that much time for immersive experiences mm-hmm. in their day. Mm-hmm. So I wonder about like some of the limitations around like, what are we going to use the metaverse for whatever it is? Mm-hmm. And in what instances is doing something in the metaverse going to be better than, Doing it on Zoom, Mm -hmm. doing it on the phone, doing it over text, doing it in person. I don't know yet. But the idea of being in a metaverse meeting, (laughs) some of the videos i see, I'm like, that doesn't seem better than (laughs) Zoom. To me, it's like, I don't know. And the other thing is like, how much friction or work is it for people to get into it? So I don't know. I think most of these things come down to some combination of can the tech deliver a really good experience and is there enough human behavior primed to take advantage of what the tech enables? And before I would have said both of those things were untrue in previous mm-hmm. attempts, which is why they didn't get very far. Yeah. With the exception of maybe of second life, mm-hmm. which I think tapped into a really specific zeitgeist and like type of person. Now I'd say the tech can deliver pretty good experience mm-hmm. and human behavior and comfort with digital relationships has come a long way. Is that sufficient to change the outcome no clue mm-hmm. no no I,
0: I think those are fantastic points honestly i couldn't agree more on the like mainstream acceptance thinking that to me is one of the things that makes me most bullish about the this time could be different you know for folks who were you know gamers growing up back then or like you know internet kids who were spending their time in like farming <laughs> on that you know like we get that and you know it's just so funny like now Everyone thinks it's like normal and okay to to meet friends online, and yeah, I mm-hmm. bet it's actually the great majority of people who have have or will meet you know a good friend online. Um, it's just funny how how much the world has changed. So earlier you mentioned you know blockchain gaming, you know you just alluded to it quickly. Is this something that you are exploring?
1: I am mostly because I'm getting pulled into it by some of my portfolio companies that have pivoted into it. Because I'm not entirely sure I. I understand it Mm -hmm. deeply yet. I'm still very much learning. I have a couple of companies that are doing things in the sphere. Mm -hmm. The energy and enthusiasm from players though, wow. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, let's just follow the energy and we'll learn as we get there. And so I think, especially coming from like a virtual goods, like earlier mindset, blockchain clearly like, addresses a bunch of the a bunch of the things that were hard to do
2: mm-hmm.
1: before. And I think people also have more fluency with digital currency, which helps a lot. Mm-hmm. I just can't wrap my head around the transaction volumes and sums of money involved yeah. and things like Axie. I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's fascinating. I just think that like the amount of crypto wealth sloshing right. around that wants to stay decidedly outside of the fiat ecosystem means you can just run lots of really interesting experiments in crypto Mm -hmm. that are hard to do with fiat so you know we've been tiptoeing into web three i've met a lot of companies where if i remove the web three piece games or not games Mm -hmm. the narrative doesn't hold together yeah and most of the things i've invested i'm like if you took web three out of the narrative it's still like an interesting idea Mm -hmm. worth exploring and so we're we're a little slow on that. Uh, admittedly, we've been slow to like jump on that train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's
0: fair. You know, uh, just on your point about gamers being so passionate, it's really funny. Like, you've seen responses in both directions, right? Like, there are some uh, projects that have been really praised, you know, and then, like, you know, for example, when Discord made an announcement or even when Ubisoft just made their announcement, you know, there was like so much backlash. So, you, you really don't know. You know, with gamers, you're going to get passion, you just don't know which direction it's <laughs> going to be in. <laughs> Well said. And you know, and on your point on uh, you know, the the crypto wealth, I think that's something that isn't really talked about enough, especially when you see, you know, the these NFT projects just randomly booming or this like random cryptocurrency that you know obviously has no utility, you know, booming. If you're somebody who has made, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions or a billion plus, and there are people out there now who have done that, you're not going to want to take your money out in fiat and then get taxed like crazy. You're going to move it in different projects. And so, you know, you're going to see a lot of weird things happening when, you know, there's someone who made a hundred million dollars and they're like, Oh, this JPEG looks really cool. Let me buy it for, you know, however many millions of dollars.
1: Totally. I, I see that happening and it's, it's the only through line I can use to explain some of the things that are happening.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, Charles, so switching to a bit of a more serious topic, you know, you throughout your career, you know, you've spoken a lot about some of the diversity challenges, both in in tech and VC. And so first to get started, you know, how has the sort of diversity picture within VC and tech changed at all throughout your career?
1: Oh my gosh, it's almost unrecognizable i mean like oh it's so bad that i'm like you don't want to know what it used to be like then Mm -hmm. i think when i first got into tech the general consensus view was that like we are not like other industries Mm -hmm. we're not prejudiced we're not racist we're not sexist Mm -hmm. we're a meritocracy this is about the best people best ideas just look at the companies that we found Mm -hmm. We found the best five guys from Stanford to do this job. (laughs) Like what could possibly be wrong? Yeah, And I think there was like this naive view that like within the set of people that were allowed into the arena, the competition felt fair. I'm like, but what about all the people who never get taken seriously and never get an opportunity? There there was sort of no acknowledgement that like most people didn't get a shot. Right. And it's like cringy. I just think like when I got into venture, there were things people said that were considered gospel like oh i only invest in companies that i could ride my bicycle to from my office mm-hmm. where's your office sandhill road hmm When what kind of companies you're gonna back
2: yeah where
1: people would say like my job is to pattern match mm-hmm. i know what works and like pattern matching was not a bad it was not considered a bad it was considered yeah. the job mm-hmm. the idea of investing in a stranger or a person you don't know was not the way you made money in venture
2: mm-hmm.
1: people would just say yeah i invest in my friends and my friends of friends and this notion of like warm intro was like, again, it was like, this is the gold standard. Yeah, You, Mr. or Miss Entrepreneur, need to find a way to penetrate my social network. That's your mm-hmm. job. It's not my job to be open to you.
2: Right.
1: And I think very few people outside of maybe Cape or Capital and a few others mm-hmm. thought about it and said, well, if these are your business practices, like no wonder you don't have any women or people of color right. in these firms. Everything you're doing will have the effect of keeping them out. Mm-hmm. And I think it took a long time for people to let go of this meritocracy argument, because I think a lot of people got into tech because they're like, we're not Wall Street. We're not the big right. banks. We're not insurance companies. We're not Philip Morris. Mm-hmm. We're not oil and gas. We are like better. We're higher minded, better people. And I think what's what's happened, and I think Ellen Powell and Me Too and a lot of those things kind of... Really mm-hmm centered the conversation on gender and made people look at like, well, why are there so few women in venture? Either something in quotes is happening mm-hmm. that's keeping them out mm-hmm. or women are just fundamentally not talented enough to be in this job. And, that, right. and the latter is a ridiculous assertion. Yeah. It's true. Mm-hmm. And I think that caused a lot of firms to say, well, what are we doing to, to make, you know, ourselves unattractive to female candidates? And these people started looking at, their websites and the kind of events that they were hosting and their team makeup. And like, mm-hmm. and people we were like, well, I guess we're kind of doing <laughs> a lot of things that like, if I looked at them, they would not signal a welcoming vibe. Right. And I think though for gender, in some ways, the conversation was a little easier mm-hmm. because most, most male VCs know women. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a wife or a partner. You've got a mother probably. hmm Um, So I think on some, I I definitely heard a lot of VCs tell me I would never want my daughter, wife, good friend that I worked with on this exec team. I would never want her to go through that thing Mm -hmm. that that person went through. And it was easy to, also there's just a lot of talented women who were on the outside looking in. And it was kind of, it's almost like someone turned the light and like, oh my God, they're all here. (laughs) And they're like, we've been here the whole time. Like, oh, we just didn't see you. Yeah, and I think the challenge for race in this conversation, is there's a lot of VCs who don't have meaningful social or professional interactions with Black or Brown people. Mm-hmm. They're not their neighbors, they're not in their firms, they're not their coworkers from that startup that did really well. Right. Maybe you. I'd argue education is maybe the one inroad. Mm-hmm. Maybe you had a Black or a Latinx person in your section at HBS, mm-hmm. or in a class you took at Wharton. Outside of education. I know a lot of people who just they don't have much interaction with with black people per- yeah. professionally or personally. I don't know how that doesn't create a certain othering, mm-hmm. and I think the racial conversation's been harder because the starting point was harder. Was like not only do I not know if these people are out there, I don't know them. Period, as people. Mm-hmm. There's this there's these like abstract thing called black people <laughs> and <laughs> not next people, and so I think this race conversation is going to be harder. Mm-hmm. And I tell people all the time, I think what's made all this easier is I think we've gotten past this illusion that the tech industry does not have all of the same problems that society has. Mm-hmm. Society struggles with sexism. Society struggles with racism. Yeah. There are people in society who don't want things to change that much because they're quite happy with the status quo. Mm-hmm. And I think as soon as tech started to say, you might have like higher aspirations and higher expectations for ourselves, but based on the results, we're not really—we shouldn't really be pointing the finger at other people and saying how you know unprincipled and how much they don't care. If we care, the outcomes don't match our actions. Mm-hmm. So I don't—I don't know. You know, part of me feels like there was so much energy after George Floyd's murder, and my big fear was that firms would do grand one-time mm-hmm. gestures that wouldn't change the way they operate. And I would say the most thoughtful firms. I know, decided not to say, we're going to do Mm -hmm. office hours for Black founders Mm -hmm. one time. And we have every partner do it for an hour on Thursday in August. Most of them just said, well, isn't the goal to get these entrepreneurs to apply to our firm as part of our regular course of business? Mm -hmm. And maybe we should figure out what it is in the same way we've attempted to do with gender. Maybe we should figure out what is it about our business practices, our firm's brand, the way we position ourselves and present ourselves What is it about all of that that causes us to not see this talent? And I think recruiting is like one big area that you can address. Bring these people into your firm. There are plenty of talented investment professionals of color out there. And I'm glad to see more people getting opportunities. Mm -hmm. I really am. So, you know, you
0: mentioned the fear of these changes being one-off. You know, I've heard a lot of people say that, including many investors in the space. Despite that, you know, you said you have noticed quite a bit of positive change throughout your career. And so looking forward, are you relatively optimistic about the state of diversity in VC and tech?
1: I am pretty optimistic through a gender lens, Mm -hmm. just because I think numerically, there's just so many talented women. And many of them are already in the orbits of people of power. And I think people of power have recognized the need for gender. I am much more concerned about the progress that we'll make on race. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly concerned on the progress we'll make at the intersection of race and gender. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we fund a lot of founders. And I think almost, I would be hard pressed to find a sub segment of my portfolio that has a harder time being taken seriously by investors than black female founders Mm -hmm. maybe non-technical black female founder might be the hardest to get funded that is a big problem i would argue that many of the black female founders that i know have as many challenges raising money from white male-led firms as they do from black male-led firms Mm -hmm. it's not as if like everyone's like oh just you know Give more Black VCs money. That will. It actually has. It's actually not true. Yeah. I think if you look at the portfolios of of some folks, that has not happened. Also, I'd argue it's hard enough to be a good VC. Why should all of the ninety nine percent of non Black VCs get a pass? Mm -hmm. Funding Black people is everybody's job. Making the industry more inclusive is everybody's job. It's not the job of Black people and black VCs to fix the VCs, mm-hmm. industries, diversity, problem when it comes to funding founders. But I, I worry a lot about these intersectional questions and like, we spend a lot more time tracking, managing, thinking about not just like, it was enlightening to me, because like at one point I looked at our data, I'm like we're doing great with black people at Precursor, like we're crushing it. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, yeah, but it's all guys. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my team as like, what are we doing wrong? We're we're doing really well attracting black founders, but mm-hmm. the 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 result of our decision making is that we end up financing we're, we're achieving our racial goal almost purely through a single gender lens. This is not this is not the kind of firm I want to create. Now. Mm. I don't think this is the kind of firm where you all want to work. And um, I think just simply being aware that that was a problem caused us to like we didn't really like. Did you spin up a whole new program? Did you like create a fast pass? I was like, no, I just tried to like meet more black female founders. I believe the good ones are out there. We just weren't seeing them.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So you mentioned the point and I'm, you know, I'm not going to go
0: super deep into this, but I just think it's worth underlining. You know, you mentioned the point that there are even black VC investors that are not necessarily opening the doors, you know, as much as you would expect And this is actually a conversation I've had with some folks, you know, sort of privately, you know, obviously not going to name names or anything like that. But, you know, I I think that is something that we as a, you know, as as an industry need to sort of, you know, continue to monitor as well and and keep people honest as well. Okay. So you've obviously done a lot through your career as well in this regard. And so, you know, just as one example, what is Screen Door Partners and what is your involvement there?
1: green door is a lot of fun chris so i don't know like my journey to starting precursor was really hard and so i try i've tried to help a lot of new managers get started
2: mm-hmm.
1: and get their own funds off the ground and consistently one problem that kept coming up for people like the world is a washing in advice mm-hmm. but like not a wash in capital and i talked to a lot of new managers i'm like what's your problem They're like my problem isn't isn't being told how to raise or getting help. My problem is literally getting my hands on the money. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I would make a lot of intros to my LPs, to try to help people get funded. And I began to realize like a lot of my LPs had a hard time evaluating first-time fund managers. Mm -hmm. And so the team at Homebrew, I give them a lot of credit, kind of decided like, well, what if we could create this new fund-to-funds entity called Screen Door that was a bunch of experienced GPs that are still early enough in our careers that we remember the struggle of being first-time fund managers. And what if we also partnered up with a bunch of the world's best LPs,
2: mm-hmm.
1: huge, you know, the heads of the private investment teams for world-class universities and foundations. What if we said, let's create a vehicle where the investment committee Is a mix of GPs who are out there in the trenches every day doing this job, grilling our friends on their plans for starting new funds, and LPs who do this for a living. And the LPs can bring the capital, and the GPs can bring the sort of expertise and mentorship. We can make a difference, but there was one specific thing I think we all agreed on which was that a lot of us were writing you know 50 or 100K LP checks, which is helpful,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but doesn't put you in business. We're like, well, what would we have to do to change people's fundraising trajectory? We're like, well, if we could be 10% of your fund and be in a first or early close, for a lot of people, that would give you momentum.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's enough money to move the needle for you. And second, if being part of Screen Door gives you the opportunity to get to know some of the institutional LPs that we know, when you grow out of Screen Door, You will do so having had the opportunity to get to know some of these LPs in a working relationship that's like low stakes for both of you. Mm -hmm. And it's been really awesome. So I'm one of the three people on the investment committee, and we raised a healthy amount of LP capital really, and honestly, to try to put people in business. And when I say people, I'm specifically saying not my friends. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I went at the screen door saying, if all I'm going to do is use this as a conduit to funnel money from limited partners to my friends mm-hmm. that's not the goal the goal right. is to get new funds off the ground and i'm happy to say that most of the funds that we've committed to we'll announce them at some point most of them you are committed to i didn't know the people at all like mm-hmm. i literally it wasn't even like oh i've heard of them. these are like i just like straight up did not know them and i'm really happy that we are pushing the envelope it would have been very easy for us to say, okay, everybody pick your very best friend and your yeah. very best friend, everyone's very best friend gets a ticket. That's how Venture works today. That's boring. Right. The screen draw for me is fun because it's a it's a vehicle for us to like allow people with small funds that are too small for big institutions to even touch. We can do those. People who have bigger funds, like I'm really like impressed by like the vision of like the, the people who started it. hmm and the forethought, and I, I've just been, and it's been also great. Like the LPs have pushed us as GPs and we've pushed back on it. It's a really, it's a nice dynamic and uh, I don't know. I've, I've really enjoyed it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds like a fantastic mission. So just switching gears, you know, and, and this sort of a concluding question, you know, you've been all over this, this tech and VC ecosystem, you know, as an operator, as a founder, as an investor. And so what else do you want to accomplish going forward? What does your future look like?
1: I really like my job. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would do anything else. I have no desire to start a new company. I know how, how hard it is to be an entrepreneur at the, building a company. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have any deep desire to do that. I don't really want to scale precursor to be some huge fund. The things I like about my job the most are kind of the people picking side. So I think, you know, I teach at the GSB. I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I, I'm quite confident investing will be a part of my life mm-hmm. forever. Whether I do it under precursor, whether I do it as an angel, I like betting on people. Yeah. And giving people money to like pursue their dreams is like, I know it sounds cheesy. It's like, <laughs> I really enjoy doing it. I, I get deep satisfaction mm-hmm. from it. And um, I can't see myself doing anything else. There's nothing else I find more interesting than that.
0: Well, that's awesome. I will certainly be rooting for you and following your progress and all these uh, different things that you have going on. Um, but I just want to say thank you for taking the time. This was a really, really great one.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.